Hey there, folks. Can China's national team of state-backed financial institutions rescue its falling markets? I'm Aaron Young. Let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. And it is so great to be with you wherever you're joining us from. First today, China's national team of group state-backed financial institutions is finding itself unable to reverse the downward spiral of the country's markets. For more, we're joined by David Zhang from China Insider, who's in New York for us. Uh, David, great to see you. Talk to us about the role of China's national team in stabilizing markets. At first, when I heard this concept of a national team, I thought it was some sort of sporting team. Exactly. But the purpose is really just to bring up the glory of China's, uh, I guess you say, market sports. But uh, its performance is to be questioned simply because this team was not handpicked from the most elite, but rather it is a team chosen to do the bidding of the government anytime it needs to. Now, according to Reuters report, as we've seen, is that they were unable to, uh, after continuous buying, uh, to still prevent a downward trend for the Chinese stock market. And I think this is a, uh, we've been talking about this throughout the different weeks, having me on about the reasons behind it. Obviously, there's consumer confidence issues, there's uh, foreign investments withdrawn, and the general downturn, uh, as well as into recession. So this is not something that you can just simply do by having you know a few firms to, to do that. And I think this is much bigger than even what they uh, can imagine. Now, we know that a few days ago, the, the Chinese government had fired the top of the securities exchange, replaced him with another more tougher regulator who is much more uh, about inspections, about keeping the market in check. So again, they're not moving away from the root of using political control to try to manage this economic market. Uh, and so far, the market's reaction or answer to those political control is to say that, well, I'm not responding to so why do you think the traditional interventions are proving less effective? Is it because, as you say, they're handpicked and therefore it's not really independent advice, it's simply trying to do the bidding of the leadership, or is it something else? Well, right now, Xi Jinping has taken over the control to personally see the recovery of the market. And so anybody he puts into charge to do these things, they're not going to move too far away from the so-called Xi Jinping's directions. Uh, and, you know, his directions are often counterintuitive to the market. Uh, and we've seen that reflected. And so the latest, you know, over the before the New Year's, there was that two days of dropping below uh, 2,700 points for domestic markets, which is relatively low. And, and uh, now it's rebounded a little bit, but that is because, again, of that forceful buying, but it's not because that the market's actually recovered. So with uh, this political-centered focus of the, the, the government, it's really hard for them to pivot, even if they have rational people in the team to say that clearly this is not what we should do, but they can't just simply do it out of political reasons. How do you think global factors are contributing to China's market challenges? Because if you have a look at the United States, the S&P 500 reaching 5,000 points for the first time, very different story as to what's happening in China. I mean, the Shanghai markets have always been seen as somewhat of a roller coaster. The ASX has been seen as a proxy for the Chinese economy, a safer place there as well. Uh, talk to us about some of the global factors making things worse for China right now. Yeah, if you just compare this time, the drop to the 2015-2016 stock market crash in, in China, you can see that the, the, the international side of things is much less exposed to the Chinese situations. Now, we mentioned the international side of things. Foreign investments withdrawn from the Wall Street uh, 
part of you know just general investments into China, as well as I think there's a uh, a domestic but also a foreign foreign consumer confidence, right? That's reflected in manufacturing and export, as well as in the general goods coming out of China. So uh, the coupling is real. It's coming from both inside China and uh, on the international stage. So I think this reflects the current state, which is that China is becoming more obsolete, but also isolated in its market. Because, I mean, frankly, there's just alternatives now that didn't exist 10 years ago. Talk to us about some of the implications for the global economy the other way around, if China's markets continue to decline, because many countries like Australia rely on China to be their biggest customer. China also produces so much for the world, and that instability could lead to a a global collapse. Could it lead to uncertainty around the world? Or is China essentially uh, now a country in its own? It's been trying to be insular. Will that insular nature be enough to prevent the rest of the world from following suit? I th- you have to look at it from two sides. There's a strategic uh, delinking, as they're calling it in many Western governments, uh, for the sake of in case something dramatic happens in China. But there's also China's voluntary, uh, you mentioned, insulation from the rest of the world. They're trying to start something called an inter- uh, inner circulation or dual circulation. Uh, and for Australia and many countries who rely on China to either that's consume Australian products or to just buy uh, from China. Uh, This is really up to the government of Australia to decide to seek alternatives, because I think everyone should realize that today China's economy isn't what it is 10 years ago or even five years ago. Uh, There are better alternatives out there that are much more demanding without much of the geopolitical baggage attached to it. So I think for many governments, it's a moment to decide whether they want to stick with a boat that is sinking or at least at this moment, it is filling up with water. And who knows how long it's going to take to patch up the bottom of the boat. And so that's really the big risky question for many governments. Yeah, and David, there's a lot of talk now of more stimulus over coming months as well. New loans were up in January, which was quite a surprise in China. And many say that that is because of the hope of more stimulus. Is that likely to come? Because Chinese authorities have been pretty tricky when it comes to stimulus post the lockdowns. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want an inflationary issue, as many Western countries have had. But now the talk is that they will have to push pump in the stimulus over coming months to try and prop up the economy. Yeah, the uh, I guess you would say the background for stimulus is that people you push money into the economy, people will spend the money. In turn, it's going to generate you more money. But the issue with China right now is people aren't spending money. So that is the post uh, three year pandemic. Uh, result, I guess you would say, from the, the the draconian lockdowns is that people lost confidence in spending money. So that's why China was in uh, is still in a deflationary sort of situation because in the Western world we're facing deflation, uh, sorry, inflation, and we're sort of forced to spend money because things might be more expensive, you know, five months from now. But in China, people can wait, and that's really where stimulus doesn't work. Let's talk about this story. Uh, Taiwan's defense ministry saying that it detected eight Chinese balloons over the weekend crossing the Taiwan Strait in the previous 24 hours, of which five flew right across Taiwan. That's the second day in a row. It's reported a large number of balloons there as well. Uh, This obviously will be pretty concerning for the people of Taiwan, that feeling um, that the United States had where they eventually blew them out of the sky uh, when that balloon went across China, really ruining the relations for quite some time and preventing the Secretary of State 
Anthony Blinken from a pre-prepared trip to China last year. Now, Taiwan is in the firing line or in sight of these balloons as well. What does it all mean? They're obviously, China says they're weather balloons. We know they're not weather balloons. Uh, they're spy balloons. Um, the purpose is obviously to do surveillance. And that in itself must be raising a lot of concerns in Taiwan. I think for Taiwan, that's different than the United States is there's a real psychological fear factor involved with this as well, because they're much closer. Uh, and, and the uncertainty here, I believe, the same as they've them flying fighter jet to the Taiwan air uh, defense identification zone, which is to create, uh, or I guess it's a normalization of aerial objects inside Taiwan's air, uh, airspace, but also at the same time, it is to normalize uh, uh, Chinese or you could say foreign objects within uh, Taiwan. And I think this really creates a big troubling factor, which is they've long done something called salami slicing, which is basically to step by step get people get used to the increasing threat level around Taiwan. And uh, adding this, there's a spy balloon situation, I think adds another layer because it is not a, uh, it is a near space warfare weapon, which is different from space warfare or the aerial air, uh, yeah. air do sort of dominance. So I think that's another layer of threat to Taiwan. Yeah, well, it's aviation safety, number one, but also psychological warfare. And that is something that hits the population hard. Do you think this is in response to the recent elections? I actually was surprised they did not involve a more aggressive tone after to answer to the recent election. I think China is in a period where they need to keep up the tempo in which things still need to cross to Taiwan to show that they're continuing the progress of preparing for war. But they also aren't in a state that's ready for war at this moment. So I think it's a balance between the two. And these balloons now them not being discovered is probably much better, but Taiwan being able to expose them, saying that these are traveling across Asia, I think it, it is also adding to uh, some level of awareness for the general public. I think it's it's sort of a good thing in that respect, but overall, this is still China increasing its tempo, particularly in the airspace. So interesting you talk about China not being ready for war. Certainly in many other countries like Australia, the belief is that they're ready for war and Australia isn't ready uh, to respond. Is this becoming an arms race that perhaps is unnecessary. I mean, if China isn't ready uh, to start a war to take on Taiwan, um, it doesn't look like the region wants one. Uh, so it seems to be that we're all waiting for China to get into a position and therefore responding with things like AUKUS, uh, Japan rebuilding its military as well in preparation. The former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott saying over the weekend, the drums of war are beating louder uh, in this region. We're seeing, as we mentioned, nuclear submarines. They won't arrive for at least 10, 15 years at the earliest, um, it feels as if China will be the first one to cast the die, so to speak, and no one knows where it will land. Exactly. That's the issue is that the aggressive side is always, they're always in control of when to start something. So it leaves to the defensive side to always be prepared. Now, when I say China isn't ready for war, it doesn't mean that they won't start when it is up to, you know, whether their military is ready for it. There's corruption issues. There's all sorts of levels of preparedness. But the intention has always from the Chinese side is to, uh, to take Taiwan by force if uh, they, they need to be without, uh, you know, if they, they can do so without firing a shot, obviously that'd be the better plan. But for every other world government, they should still be prepared to the maximum because, mm -hmm. you know, if we don't, then obviously China can do so.
Also, they're pretty good at manufacturing. And as we've seen with Russia, they went in completely ill-prepared to Ukraine. But now the spending that they have in their budget on, on the war in Ukraine is now at 30% of their productivity, exactly like in Soviet times. We heard from the IMF chief overnight. Um, and, and no doubt China would be the same. They would be able to turn their manufacturing into a war machine. Definitely. And I think that's the scary part for us. We are just the only thing we can do is to maximize the support for Taiwan uh, for whether it's Australia or the United States or any other country, Japan. But at the end of the day, it is really up to see you know the strength of China, how much they really have and, and what they can do to invade. And so I think uh, at, at the end of the day, there's only so much we can do to prepare and uh, to maximize deterrence so that China doesn't start a war. Yeah, well, that is definitely the hope uh, and obviously diplomacy uh, that goes on there and, and, and the belief of what it would do to the global economy as well. David Zhang, always appreciate your insights from China Insider. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you so much for your company as well. Hope to see you soon. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes. 